Hi, Gracie. So I'm about to see what I can do about making a recording like you asked me to. So I, I'm, a few um, weeks after the coronavirus began washing over the country, I started talking to a woman who I can't stop thinking about. She asked me not to use her real name for this story. Instead, she wants to use the name Pebble. It was her grandma's name. I am just walked through the entrance of the wine guard, and the security guard there told me to spread my arms and legs. Like right now, Pebble is living in a place called the Weingart Center on Skid Row in Los Angeles. Skid Row is a neighborhood with an astonishing concentration of unhoused people living on the streets, in tents, in emergency shelters, and in big transitional housing facilities like the Weingart, this huge 11-story building. So I'm walking into the space where we have to wait for the elevator. We're down to one elevator for a 1,000 people. It's going to be like at least a 40-minute wait, and the elevator is about four and a half by five. Six adults are squishing into that space. It's hard to socially distance at the Weingart. The shared spaces are crowded. On any given night, the Weingart provides interim housing to about 600 people. Plus, there's all the support staff. There are elderly people living here, disabled people, people just coming out of prison, people like Pebble fleeing domestic violence. Some people stay for just a night, others for weeks or months. Pebble has been staying at the Weingart since last fall. So I'm in the restroom now. There's approximately 70 to 80 people on this floor. We were down to one bathroom for three days, three toilets and three sinks. But the women use those to, as restrooms, because there's not enough toilets. Um, they brush their teeth, they wash their private parts. I asked Pebble to make some recordings of her life, because I'd been wondering, as most of the country was being asked to stay at home, what it feels like when you don't have a stable home. Welcome to The Uncertain Hour. I'm Chrissy Clark, and we're bringing you a sort of emergency pop-up season to help make sense of this most uncertain hour we're in, where inequalities that have always been in our country are put in high relief. We're calling it a history of now. And today, we're going to talk about shelters, transitional housing, and other big facilities where unhoused people are living in institutional, congregate settings. In the middle of a global pandemic, where close quarters mean high risks, these places have become some of the nation's coronavirus hotspots. The coronavirus is spreading in Baltimore homeless shelters. New York City is moving 6,000 homeless adults from shelters into hotels. The L.A. Mission is now sanitizing its building three times a day. Those working to end homelessness say if the city doesn't do more, COVID-19 will continue to spread rapidly and lead to even more deaths. In early April, the government tested people in homeless shelters in Seattle, Boston, and San Francisco. Nearly one in three residents tested positive for COVID-19. In homeless facilities in Los Angeles, there have been more than 200 cases and five deaths. But it's not just right now during the pandemic that these sorts of institutions can be risky. Many experts on homelessness say these places have never been a very good long-term fix for homelessness. And yet, they've been a mainstay of how our country responds to the problem. 
According to the federal government, half a million people were homeless in the U.S. on a given night last year. More than 60% of them were staying in these sorts of places, emergency shelters or transitional housing programs. So why? Why did these big institutional settings for unhoused people become such a thing? We're going to go back in history to look for an answer to that question. But we're going to start with the story of this woman, Pebble, who's living in one of these places. The transitional housing facility she's staying at has had an outbreak. They've reported eight COVID cases as of this week, one staff member and seven residents. The Weingart has been quarantining entire floors on and off for the last several weeks. Hi, Gracie. Hi. Can you hear me? <laughs> Here I am. Great. Yes. Okay. Pebble cool. and I have checked in on the phone every few weeks during the pandemic, starting in early April. Each time we'd catch up, I couldn't get her story out of my head. She'd talk to me from her room at the big transitional housing facility she lives in on L.A.'s Skid Row. There are dorm-style areas with 10 or so to a room, but also some private rooms. She has one of those. I am grateful. Um, It wasn't always the case, and I had to fight really hard, and, um, but I do have my own room, and it's about 17 by 6, and there is a vinyl-covered mattress-type thing in it, and a locker, and that's it. But even with a private room... Living in such a big institutional setting, she has very little control over her own space. There's no outside food allowed in her room without a doctor's note. Like, I I literally feel like a criminal. I'm getting scared of being caught for sneaking in some apples and peanut butter. In the communal bathroom, she shares, the showers have no curtains and sometimes no hot water. I just took an ice-cold shower. It's very quiet now, which I'm really grateful for. And this is a very rare, rare thing. In general, there is really loud music playing all day till 3.45 in the morning. There's screaming, there's yelling, there's fighting. Staff knocking on our doors for room checks at 12.30 at night, 1 in the morning, 4 in the morning. It's really difficult to sleep or to find any time to be quiet or to read. The anxiety alone is a lot. I mean, it's really more than I've ever had to experience in my life. Pebble says even before the pandemic, the close quarters, the lack of privacy felt overwhelming. But now? It's like exponentially more disturbing with coronavirus. Pebble's extra vulnerable to COVID. She has asthma and a compromised immune system. She says when the safer-at-home orders first came down in L.A., she realized, for her, in the kind of place she's living right now... Now so more than ever, like, it's sort of counterintuitive to what everybody's hearing. But in this environment, you are safer not staying at home. But of course, not being at home isn't much of an option right now either with so much of L.A. still shut down. Pebble says that was made very clear to her at the end of March, when her housing facility told everyone they had to leave their rooms for one of its regular pest control treatments. Even when things are open, it's difficult. 
right, to be wandering the street for six hours. But you can go to the library, you can go to a cafe. It's annoying, it's frustrating, it's disruptive. It feels bad because you feel even more homeless than even you already are. Like you're like on the streets with nowhere to go. And if you don't have money, it's difficult. But you can kind of just make it work and dig deep. But now with everything shut down, there's literally nowhere to go. For most of her life, Pebble had a home of her own to go to. She had a career. For almost a decade, she worked in the entertainment industry. She says she was a revenue analyst. She worked in admin for cable TV stations. She was interested in archaeology and worked on a dig in Belize. She was married, lived in North Hollywood in an apartment. But her husband struggled with mental illness. And eventually, she started caring for him full time. About three years in... He really deteriorated from what was diagnosed as bipolar and schizophrenia. And he was gone. He started to get violent with her. He gave her bloody noses and black eyes. As things unraveled, she felt embarrassed. She started isolating herself from her friends. She had no family she could turn to. Both her parents died when she was 20, and she's been on her own ever since. She says it was hard to imagine leaving when her husband was so sick, but she started to try to make a plan of escape. By this point, money was tight. She didn't have enough savings to just get her own apartment or even cover many nights in a hotel. She began researching some groups that helped people experiencing domestic violence to get out of their situation and into stable housing. They'd provide moving expenses and a few months' rent. That sounded like just what she'd need. But then, last fall, as she was just starting to look into those programs, something really bad happened at home. She didn't want to get into it. But she says she needed to get out immediately. The violence escalated to such a point that I had to just go, and I had to go in like 45 minutes while he wasn't there. Oh, gosh. She called someone she knew, crying. They connected her to a social worker they knew. And so they said, well, we're coming to get you. You have 45 minutes to get your stuff together. And the next thing she knew, she was being driven to the facility where she is now. And I had no idea what this place was. And well, this is where I ended up. And I have some anger issues about that. I mean, not angry like, but I don't know. What's a better word than anger? When Pebble told me about her frustrations, she was a little nervous. She doesn't know if the people at the Weingart would want her to talk publicly about her concerns. She says she doesn't want to sound ungrateful. And she says there are things she's thankful for about the facility. She's thankful that she was able to bring her support animal. She's all I have in this world. Like, I cry into her fur. I talk to her. Like, she loves me and she's happy to see me every day. And I really need that. She's thankful not to be sleeping out on the street, where tens of thousands of people in L.A. do sleep, some just below her window. And she's heard the conditions are much better at the Weingart than at other facilities on Skid Row. But she says the whole model of packing hundreds of unhoused people into these sorts of institutional facilities just seems wrong. I think that a lot of people assume that unhoused people lack basic human 
characteristics, like hardworking, decent, capable of earning a living. And so maybe they assume that they don't deserve basic human dignity. For example, privacy when you shower. And so since she fled her old life and moved to this transitional housing facility, she's been clinging to that word, transitional. She's tried to focus on where she'd go next. I came in here and we talked about, you know, this the very difficult decision I had to make yeah. to leave. And and I it was very hard. And I came in with the expectation that I would be like maybe two or three months. Just like a, a stopgap to just get things together for you. Yeah. Yeah. Quick bridge. Cause I'm, I'm educated. I, I am really, I'm not saying this like with any level of hubris or anything. I just felt like it would just be a, a quick transition because I had things in place that maybe other people would have to spend more time working on such as education and work experience, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, updated resume, those kind of things that maybe might people might need more time to put together, I already had those in place. But the institutional environment Pebble is in now, she says it's not the quick bridge she hoped it would be. It feels more like a trap. She has a temporary job through a program at a local nonprofit for unhoused women. But the program only lasts six months, and her time is almost up. Her plan was to use that time to find a more permanent, better-paying job like she used to have. But with the economy shut down for the last few months, that hasn't happened. And she says even as things are starting to open back up, it's hard to even do a job interview on the phone with all the noise and chaos where she lives. And if she got a job, it'd be hard to be at the office, clean and on time and focused. That I could not possibly make a commitment to like that kind of a job in this environment. Where there's no hot water, where the water's turned off sometimes, where there's sirens and shootings. And I could not make the commitment that I could be present and accountable to that level, mm-hmm. you know, a level of job that would allow me to go get my own market rate apartment. And then it seems like it's just this catch 22 where it's like, well, you need a stable place so that you can get the kind of job that you could afford to get a stable place. (laughs) That's right. Pebble says it all makes it hard to try to piece together her life so that she can move on and be, as she puts it, a fully functioning, contributing member of society. You know, they keep calling me high-functioning, but I'm, like, so low-functioning for who I am and what I'm used to. I'm, like, I feel so worthless. And just so, like, I'm not going to climb out of this. And But they calling me high-functioning, and I can't help think, okay, what if I'm high-functioning and I'm having so much trouble figuring this out? Oh, my God, what are the non-high-functioning people doing? They'll never get out of here. It feels like this system is so obviously to anybody who's going to bother to care or pay attention that the that the most likely outcome for the most amount of individuals is failure. So how did we get this system that Pebble feels like is setting her up to fail? 
it turns out the reason has to do with some pretty surprising and pretty fundamental misunderstandings of why people are homeless in the first place. That's coming up after a break. Before the break, I was telling you the story of Pebble, the woman living on Skid Row in a big transitional housing facility in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And Pebble's story brings us to this larger question. How did these huge congregate living situations become such a mainstay of our response to homelessness in the first place? Transitional housing facilities, emergency shelters, why did they become such a thing? And I should say, homelessness is a huge issue with a whole host of complicated causes and solutions that we could spend a whole season diving deep into. But on this episode, we're going to focus on this one more narrow question. Why did these big congregate facilities become one of our primary responses to homelessness? So, as we like to do on The Uncertain Hour, I wanted to trace that back in history. And I didn't have to go too far back, because what I discovered is that our modern system of sheltering unhoused people really goes back to the early 1980s. Homeless people are everywhere. Cities like Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. have thousands of people living on the streets. There was this moment of crisis in cities across the country. Officials say there are some 5,000 homeless people in San Jose. Right now, tonight, there are more than 100,000 homeless kids in our country, and that's excluding runaways. Today's rally at the nation's capital united the homeless and wage earners struggling to afford a home. For the first time, we started hearing this word, homeless. There'd been people who lived on the streets in the past. But all of a sudden, there were record numbers of people, including women and children, living on the streets, too. You have all over the city people who are, seem to just appear out of nowhere who are living on street corners and on park benches in places where people are not supposed to be sleeping. Marian Moser-Jones is a social historian at the University of Maryland who studies what she calls the institutionalization of benevolence. She's written a lot about how researchers and policymakers have viewed homelessness in America and tried to tackle it. Marian says the reaction of policymakers in places like New York City was to treat this new influx of people living on the streets as they would any other emergency. So in, in any city or even large town, if there's a flood, if there's a tornado where a bunch of people lose their homes, if there's a fire, um, the city would open up um, a school or open up churches so that people could shelter in them. Oh, a hurricane blew your house over, so here's an emergency shelter for you. Yes, exactly, yes. And so this becomes the solution. You see homelessness being treated almost like a natural disaster, when in fact it's anything but. At the state and local level, Marion says advocates started to sue local governments to force them to open more of these big emergency shelters in huge buildings, old armories, old hospitals, to get people off the streets, at least for a while. An emergency shelter, by definition, uh, involves a time limit. And so uh, for the people who are showing up to, to... use shelter are given 30 days or 90 days um, to stay in the shelter and then they have to leave. Hmm. And there's an underlying assumption that 
whatever has driven them onto the street uh, is something that can be remedied quickly. So there isn't some underlying shortage of housing. There isn't some underlying um, chronic issue to which many institutions in society contribute. And of course, what you think has driven someone onto the street is going to affect how or if you try to address it. With big congregate living facilities like emergency shelters and transitional housing or something else. So I want to spend some time looking at how people were thinking about that question. Marian says, today, in hindsight, it's clear that this wave of homelessness in the 1980s had roots in a whole set of deeper underlying issues that had been building for years. The economy was in the worst downturn since the Great Depression. Unemployment was in double digits in 30 states. Wages weren't keeping up with the cost of living. Budgets for public housing, subsidized housing, and other kinds of housing assistance had been slashed in the 1970s and early 80s. Meanwhile, urban renewal projects and slum clearing had displaced many low-income families. Cities like New York were trying to lure wealthier people to move back, so they created new tax incentives for building owners to turn cheap single-room occupancy hotels, SROs, into higher-end market-rate units. It sparked a wave of evictions in places like the Bowery. Literally, in, in 1977, there was a building and... Before it was bought and redeveloped, you had people living there in the SROs. And then afterwards, some of the residents were living on the street in front of the SRO. Wow. So it was very dramatic. And on top of all that, in the 1960s and 70s, there'd been a push to deinstitutionalize people living in mental health facilities. But out of all those swirling forces, Marion says there were two main ones that captured the attention of the Reagan administration, which was in charge at the time. Deinstitutionalization and the theory that people had made bad choices that drove them onto the street. And focusing on those two theories had a profound effect on our response to homelessness, an effect that's still with us today. Marion says, in some ways, mental illness was an understandable focus back then. There were many who said that homelessness is primarily a result of deinstitutionalization of people with mental illness or our failure to provide adequate treatment to people with mental illness. And part of the reason they said so is because if anyone walked around the streets of a city like New York, Washington, L.A. Skid Row, you would encounter people who seem to be experiencing obvious symptoms of psychosis, right? Who might be talking to themselves, who might be seem to be unkempt and um, incoherent. And so in the 80s, media reports and policymakers started linking this new phenomenon of homelessness to the dramatic reduction of state mental hospital populations. In fact, President Reagan, in his diary in 1984, his presidential diary, wrote that he believed that homelessness was caused by the failure of certain governors to effectively deinstitutionalize their mental patients in the 1960s and 70s. Reagan wrote that? Yeah, he did, in his diary. Which is a bit ironic because Reagan himself, as governor of California, had overseen the deinstitutionalization of the state's psychiatric hospitals. Marion says if you look at the federally funded studies trying to find the root causes of homelessness in the 1980s, you see this trend. 
almost all of them focus on individual problems rather than problems with the economy or the social safety net, especially the individual problem of mental health. So if you could find the single cause of homelessness, we could fix the mental health um, system to the extent that people wouldn't become homeless, you know, provide enough mental health treatment and care for people who are have mental health issues, um, you know, get them taking their meds, get them under psychiatric care, um, so then they are able to, you know, to function and to, to pay rent. Um, there were, that was very alluring to say, then we can solve the crisis. And this belief that mental illness was a main reason for homelessness helped drive the growth of these places that emerged in the 1980s called transitional housing like the kind of place Pebble, who we met at the beginning of the show, is living. Transitional housing is often a big communal living facility. They usually have a lot of rules to protect and supervise residents, require counseling, make them take their meds if they need them. And if you think severe mental illness is one of the primary causes of homelessness, this might make sense as a primary approach to fix it. There was just one problem. What did we know at that point about how much homelessness was actually connected to mental health issues? So by the mid-1980s, these these pioneering programs from these national uh, institutes uh, come out with uh, some early studies that say that actually um, it's less than a third of people experiencing homelessness are um, people with severe mental illness. Less than a third. Yeah. Wow. Let's pause on that finding for a sec, because the idea that less than a third of people experiencing homelessness had severe mental illness really went against prevailing wisdom. Public health officials publicly disputed the finding. But study after study started to say the same thing, that only a minority of people experiencing homelessness actually suffered from severe mental illness. So programs to help people with mental illness weren't going to help most of the people who didn't have homes. And yet, Marion says in the 1980s, the federal government largely ignored the findings of the research they were funding. There was another theory about the causes of homelessness back in the 1980s that also helped build momentum for these big shelters and transitional housing facilities. The idea that if unhoused people are not mentally ill, they must be unhoused because they made bad choices. President Reagan embraced this theory too. Here he is in an interview with Good Morning America. We have found in this country, and maybe we're more aware of it now, is one problem uh, that we've had even in the best of times, and that is the people who are sleeping on the grates, the homeless who are homeless, you might say, by choice. And Reagan's focus on individual choices has a long history in America. Marion Moser-Jones, the social historian, says our country has always drawn lines between those we see as worthy of help and those we see as unworthy. Since even before um, the Republic was founded, and that's this idea that there are the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. This is how we got the poor houses and workhouses that were so common in the 19th and early 20th century. Places for people who were seen as lazy, people whose bad choices had made them poor. During the Reagan era, that philosophy got a stronger hold. Reagan believed in individual responsibility, not government handouts. And I'm asking that you join me in reducing direct federal spending 
by $41.4 billion in fiscal year 1982. Over the course of the 1980s, the Housing and Urban Development Agency budget was reduced by over 40 percent, and money for federal housing assistance and subsidized housing was cut almost in half. This was an era of uh, retrenchment at the federal level in terms of federal spending and involvement and responsibility for um, urban poverty, for housing. This is David Bly. He works on homelessness with the Gates Foundation. And it was really the first pushback since uh, the New Deal when the federal government felt it had much broader scope of responsibility. And Ronald Reagan came in with a very different conception of what federal government should do. And one of the things he felt they should not do is intervene in the housing markets and subsidize low-income housing. David Bly talked with our producer, Chris Julin, and Chris is here to tell us a little more. Hey, Chris. Hi, Chrissy. So... David Bly was actually there in Washington back in the 1980s when things had gotten bad enough that the federal government was forced to confront homelessness. But he had a different job then. Yeah, he was a congressional aide then. He worked for a progressive congressman from Washington State, a guy named Mike Lowry. So I was working on Capitol Hill for Congressman Lowry when we received a uh, mimeographed copy of a letter to Congress from somebody named Mitch Snyder at the Community for Creative Nonviolence. Mitch Snyder was a vocal and prominent activist in the 1980s, and he was all over the news. There's going to be tens of millions of people on the streets. Some of them are going to be you. Some of them are going to be your kids. And the letter simply was an appeal to anybody in Congress who would be willing to help him help figure out what a national policy should look like. And somewhat naively, I guess, I appeared to be the only uh, person from Capitol Hill to actually respond to the letter. And you have to keep in mind that at this point, there is no national policy dealing specifically with homelessness. There's no federal law at all aimed at homelessness. And one of the things that Mitch Snyder wanted the government to do was provide money for shelters. So Mitch Snyder and David Bly met up and they came up with a strategy. David Bly would keep working the halls of Congress, trying to get politicians on board, and Mitch Snyder would keep up the street actions, uh, keep himself on the evening news with protests. And Mitch was a pretty talented uh, rabble-rouser, um, and the strategy he had come up with was um, to stage a permanent demonstration over the holiday period, Thanksgiving to Christmas, where they put a um, crush scene, a Christmas scene in a statue outside of the Congress building on the mall and said they wouldn't leave until Congress and the president did something. Whoa, and so what happened? What happened is that Congress passed the McKinney Act. It had bipartisan support. David Bly says there was this rumor going around Washington, D.C. that Reagan signed the law in the middle of the night so that he could avoid publicity because it cut against the grain of his usual policies. Huh. The act provided a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B, to addressing homelessness. And the money went to health care and housing subsidies. And it also went to transitional housing and shelters. So the activists got at least some of what they wanted, but we can see the beginnings of this government emphasis on short-term emergency help, shelters, and big transitional living facilities, like the one Pebble lives in. Sort of the homeless industrial complex. Here's Marianne Moser-Jones again, the historian. 
There's a huge shelter system, you know, shelters. And then the next step is transitional housing, which is maybe a longer term quasi shelter, quasi home. And then the idea is that once you've graduated from the transitional housing, you're supposed to be what you call housing ready to go back into the housing market, into, you know, regular uh, private market rate housing because you're supposed to have gotten back on your feet. But there have always been voices saying there's another thing we need to focus on beyond emergency shelters and transitional housing. If homelessness isn't so much the product of mental illness or bad choices, maybe it's a product of not being able to afford housing. For Mitch Snyder, the activist who had fought so hard to get the federal government to address homelessness at all, what Congress passed didn't go nearly far enough. Building more shelters and transitional housing was a needed stopgap measure. But ultimately, he wanted the government to get people real housing. Here he is speaking in 1988. It isn't a mystery why there's millions of people on the street. It isn't a mystery why tens of millions of hardworking people in this country are spending 50, 60, 70 percent of their income on a place to live, are living double, triple, quadrupled up. That happened because eight years ago, The federal government took a walk. They cut 80% out of the housing budget. And there ain't nobody other than the federal government that's got the money to make sure that every human being in this society has a decent place to call home at a price they can afford. And activists started asking this radical question. What if the first step to helping people without a home was simply to get them a home? give people a safe, stable, permanent place to live, a place of their own, with no strings attached, make supportive services like mental health counseling or sobriety programs available, but not conditions you have to meet before you get access to a permanent, stable home. It's a model called Housing First. Here's Marian Moser-Jones again. In New York City, they did a randomized control trial where they actually assigned, randomly assigned people either to the transitional housing, you know, emergency shelter, transitional housing model, or to housing first. And uh, lo and behold, it showed that housing first was more effective than um, this other model. People in the New York City housing first model stayed just as sober as people in the other program. They made as much progress towards mental health. And over the next two years, they were far less likely to end up unhoused again. Partly, Marion says, because they were free from all the conditions and rules that come with big congregate housing facilities, all the lack of privacy, stuff that she says drives a lot of people back onto the streets. Many people were getting kicked out of transitional housing uh, programs uh, because they didn't adhere to them, uh, to their rules, or simply resented the rules. So just getting people housing seemed to have had better outcomes than programs that tried to teach people how to get ready to be housed. The solution is rather simple. Housing, housing, housing. This is affordable housing is one of the simplest and most overlooked um, solutions to homelessness. Plus, other studies showed that, at least in some cities, with enough affordable housing stock, a housing-first approach could be cheaper for governments in the grand scheme of things. Because emergency shelters are expensive to maintain, um, and when people go through, you know, cycles of, say, being in an emergency shelter for 90 days, then back out in the street, and maybe in a jail, and then maybe going to the emergency room because they're out on the street, that that adds up to quite a bit of money. 
As more studies have come out about the successes of Housing First, more cities have adopted it. And even at the federal level, the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration each deemed it their preferred approach to addressing homelessness. They focused federal funding on Housing First programs and turned money away from transitional housing. In that time, from 2007 to 2018, homelessness in the U.S. actually decreased by 15 percent, according to numbers from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. But recently, the Trump administration has signaled a reversal. President Trump's recently appointed homelessness czar, Robert Marbot, has expressed skepticism around Housing First. He's the founder of a shelter system where some people have to sleep outside in a courtyard until they've passed a drug test. He frequently goes undercover as a homeless person to do research, he says. Here he is talking with NPR in 2014. So I went out and was homeless for several days, and then I've done that throughout everywhere I go. Robert Marbot has said that providing housing for people before they've managed underlying problems that might have caused them to be on the streets could just perpetuate what got them there. He's a supporter of models like large-scale shelters, where housing comes with conditions and rules meant to help people change. Where you get recovery is when you go into 24-7 programs that holistically address the condition of homelessness. He's called his approach not housing first, but housing fourth. I asked Pebble, the woman we heard from earlier who lives at the big transitional housing facility in L.A.'s Skid Row, what she thinks about the idea of housing first. She wasn't that familiar with the phrase, but when I explained it to her, that the idea is to prioritize getting people a place of their own, with privacy, where they can make their own rules. She was like... 100%. She says that's the kind of thing she needs to get back on her feet. And it's worth pointing out that Pebble actually lives in a state and a city where the Housing First model is actually embraced. But even in a place like L.A., where the priority is to get people into a place they can call home right away, the problem is there's just not enough affordable housing to go around. I was told I would get affordable housing, like, within six months. No, people are waiting two years. Pebble says she doesn't think she'll need help paying rent forever. I just want it long enough to get it on my feet and then, you know, and then hopefully let it be available for somebody else. That's that's my end goal. You know, I mean, I don't know the way rent prices are around here. We're all going to need um, <laughs> some kind of subsidy. <laughs> By the way, we did talk to a spokesperson at the Weingart Center, where Pebble lives. They said the Weingart believes people are more successful in permanent housing when they've addressed the barriers that led them to the streets in the first place, and that their program provides people with, quote, the tools to become successful once they transition to a permanent home. As for the coronavirus, the Weingart gave us a statement saying the facility has implemented social distancing guidelines inside their building and that they're able to close off entire floors as needed so that clients can, quote, safely and comfortably shelter in place. And I want to tell you one last interesting thing I came across when I was working on this episode. When I was talking to our producer, Chris Julin, 
he told me something I didn't realize about American law and housing. The federal government actually committed itself to ending homelessness, to providing housing for everyone in the country, going way back, decades back. In 1944, FDR talked about it in his State of the Union address. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. In that speech, FDR ticked down this long list of rights that he said the government has to uphold for citizens, including the right of every family to a decent home. The right of every family to a decent home. Those are big words. But did it make it into any law? It did make it into the law. In 1949, the Federal Housing Act included a clause that called for families to have a decent home. I'll I'll use a, a quote here. A decent home and a suitable living environment for every American family. And it said that was supposed to happen, I'll quote one more time, as soon as feasible. That law was reauthorized as recently as 2018. And it still has that wording in it. It still says this should happen as soon as is feasible. I guess it's not feasible yet. I guess not. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with our final episode of this pop-up season. We're going to answer some of the questions that have come up for you as you've been listening to the season about how we got to this uncertain hour we're in. Questions about unemployment, health insurance, and the real cost of the food we eat. Working cold and crowded conditions for low wages and, you know, under a lot of duress. So if you look at those conditions, say, that's in part why chicken is so cheap. By the way, we love hearing from you, so please keep it coming. Your questions about this stuff and your personal stories about how the coronavirus is affecting you or your job and your ability to make ends meet. Have you had trouble getting unemployment benefits? If you're still working, do you feel safe, get sick pay? Or maybe you're a gig or a temp worker wondering what kind of protections you have. Email us. The address is uncertainhour at marketplace.org. We'd love to answer some of your questions and play some of your stories in the next episode. And if you love the show, please share it with a friend, review us on your favorite podcast app, tweet about us, spread the love. It really helps us keep going. Our show is produced by Caitlin Esch, Chris Julin, and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Our editor is Catherine Winter. Our engineer is Daniel Ramirez. Our intern is Daniel Martinez. Our digital team is Tony Wagner and Erica Phillips. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. And I'm Marketplace senior correspondent, Chrissy Clark. <laughs>